Welcome to a News Laundry podcast. This is Global Summits. Where are we going? Hi, I'm Birat Swai and this is News Laundry podcast. Global Summits. Where are we going? 196 countries, six years of anticipation, 14 days of negotiation, and finally the 21st Conference of Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change had a deal at Paris. It was gavelled under the leadership of Laurent Fabius, the French Foreign Minister, at 7:40 p.m. Parisian time on 12 December 2015, and the French Minister reminded the world that the historic deal was being done exactly a month after the gruesome Paris attacks. Today we are discussing the post-COP21 reactive with a superb panel. We shall discuss COP21. Kya khoya, kya paya. We shall listen in to the standoff between United States and the G77 plus China, and how the unity stayed. And oh, of course, where was Brazil? Climate finance. Who is picking up the tab? And is 2020 too late to put that elusive hundred billion dollars on the table? India's pitch and participation. The intended nationally determined contributions add up to 2.7 degrees celsius then why are we talking 1.5 degrees celsius or less than 2 in the document finally the morning after road ahead the iconic african writer chidamanda adiche talked of the dangers of telling a single story so we have chosen a panel with care that the story doesn't remain a single narrative but before i bring in the panelists please remember programs like this are possible because of independent media when corporates pay corporates agenda is served including the fossil fuel industry corporate when people pay your agenda is served please support independent media please support news laundry help us to keep news free And our regular show producer, the brilliant Karthik Nijhavan, is back. Welcome, Karthik. Now let's listen into the key highlights of the Paris climate deal. On the 12th of December, 196 countries signed up to a new climate order at Paris. It stated to keep the rise of global temperatures far below 2 degrees Celsius by the turn of the century, to ensure global emissions peak as soon as possible. with developed countries doing so before others 100 billion us dollars will be made available for climate adaptation per annum from 2020 onwards to ensure net greenhouse gas emissions become zero in the second half of this century what are the wins and losses for india well first the wins one differentiation between developed and developing world while reducing emissions two no possible ratcheting up of emission targets periodically 3 india does not have to compulsorily provide climate finance 4 no peaking of emissions before other countries 5 removing reference to decarbonization of economies against fixed deadlines 6 the paris pact not entirely centered on mitigation but it lays substantial stress on other elements such as finance adaptation loss and damage and now the losses for india one transparency mechanism brings equivalence between developed and developing countries through the back door two global financial flows for thermal power in india will shrink with time three climate justice is a non starter idea in the pact pm modi's speech notwithstanding four carbon budget concept fails to find place no reference to reducing cost of intellectual property rights 
Now to the panelists, some of who have just landed from Paris. Mr. Mukul Sanwal, we are really glad to have him back after the SDG Reactive, which got rave reviews thanks to his participation. Career diplomat, career bureaucrat, and India's first chief climate negotiator at the first COP in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. He has been the advisor to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change too, the final word on climate and science. And he's just published his book, The World's Search for Sustainable Development, A Southern Perspective, which is available in Cambridge. Again, please grab your copy. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Aditi Kapoor, a pro-justista, campaigner, and director of Alternative Futures, advising many state governments on climate adaptation. Welcome to the show, Aditi. Thank you. Raman Mehta, lead expert on the big picture in the Climate Action Network International and also a member, a very active member of the Climate Action Network South Asia. Welcome, Raman. Thanks. Finally, honored to have Daryl DeMonte, the godfather of environmental journalism in India and founder secretary of Forum of Environmental Journalists India and also with the International Forum of Environmental Journalists. Welcome to the show, Daryl. Glad Thank to you have so you. So, gentlemen and lady, while we took care to pick all Indians, many of you have international remit and standing. So, do give us different stories, as Chidamanda Adiche said. We will not stick to a single narrative. I hope we'll have engaging, dispassionate conversations and passionate conversations. So, two partisan co-chairs in the first week of negotiation and a bracketed document with massive disagreements. That's how the developing countries reacted and just waited out till the French took over. And long nights of negotiations and additional day. And finally, the French told the world there is a deal. Your first reactions, Mr. Sanwal? I think this is part of the process of uh, deal-making in the United Nations. How else do you get 190-odd countries together uh, as disparate as Burkina Faso in the United States. That's one point. The second point is that you need to keep discussing these issues so that ideas get distilled in a way. Where I think things went wrong was that for the first time, at least in, uh, to my recollection, that the, 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 the entire international group or the group of developing countries rejected the work of the co-facilitators and said we don't have trust in them. I think that was new. But then it is also important that that unity held and the response to, to that statement was also very prompt from the side of the French. And they retrieved the situation completely. And you found a, a, a very interesting situation where different iterations of the text were circulated in public. So that the, the international community at large, not just the negotiators sitting in a back room as happens in the WTO, but the NGOs and everybody else interested in this subject was able to see what the various positions were and how the compromises were evolving and in which direction. I think that is new. The third thing I think is very important is that the, the national leaders played an important part in this at the beginning of the process in Paris. They came and made their statements. So there again, the international community came to know quite clearly what these people were standing for. The important point, I think, is that this agreement, as compared to the Copenhagen Agreement, for example, or even Kyoto, uh, or, or the final negotiation in, in 92, was different. It was out in the open. It was more transparent. That, I think, is new. The second thing I think that is new is that the G7 was no longer controlling the agenda or the outcome. The other players were playing an equally important part, particularly India and China. India, third point is that India, I think, played a very singular role in laying out the idea of climate justice. Whether it, to what extent it has come inside or not is debatable. 
but the fact that it was raised openly in, in an international forum, and parts of it are there in the preamble. Now, you could say that this is not legally justifiable, legally enforceable, but we'll then... Come, we'll come to India's speech okay. participation. But that, I think, is important that the agenda was also being set by people who are not in the G77, and they were making an impact. And also the fact that it was there was a lot of sunshine in terms of clauses during the process of negotiation. Which is very important. Yeah. I think from journalistic perspective, that becomes really important because in this series also, we've been talking for our listeners, we've been talking a lot about how international negotiations are happening in shrouded secrecy where your and my future, our children's shared future and destinies are being negotiated and why there needs to be parliamentary oversight and more sunshine. And according to Mr. Sanwal, it, thinks, it seems... COP is setting an agenda of doing negotiations. And that's why the, the outcome was fair. Okay. Uh, Aditi, since you've just landed back from Paris? Yes. Your take? Yes. Your, your initial uh, reactions on the COP21 deal? Okay. Um, well, I think uh, uh, Mr. Sanwal is right that uh, there was a lot of transparency in the sense that, uh, the, you know, this is probably the first time that one has seen so many texts being rolled out um, every day or every other day, much before the final text is uh, shared with by the public. Uh, however, you know, some of the contact groups and spin-off groups where the real discussions were held, or even some of the Indabas, which is the informal group, you know, interactions, um, meetings even between the ministers, uh, civil society has been trying to gain access to this, these, and this was not done. And a lot of times that civil society actually said that these were the options that we wanted, those were not the ones that came out in the next set of uh, documents that came. So I think there's still a long way to go in terms of, uh, you know, what is really kind of, uh, you know, fair in the sense that the most vulnerable people would really say yes, that that's fair. And I think that's where we should really be judging the agreement that, uh, you know, I, the, the blog that I wrote just when the agreement was being finalized said that this is a wake-up call. And Mr. Sanwar is right that, you know, getting 196 nations to agree to something is very difficult. But I think the real work really lies ahead. And uh, if you look at it from a fairness point of view, then really it's the most vulnerable people whose eyes we need to look at from. So I think we still have a long way to go there. And I think Guardian George Moimbot actually does echo your feeling, Aditi. He did say that it seems the poorest and the most vulnerable have been um, shortchanged. Uh, Raman, your uh, initial reactions? Uh, so my, my initial reaction is that uh, uh, what the agreement uh, has done in terms of uh, you know, a, a substantive sort of achievement is that uh, while everybody was equally unhappy, everybody also felt that they got something out of the agreement. So that to, to, to to a large extent, is probably a good basis. It takes special for, talent. It takes a special talent, and it's a good basis for everybody to move forward together in a cooperative uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a in a uh, emotion of cooperation, rather than uh, uh, in an emotion of being shortchanged and so on. In terms of the process itself, just to add to uh, what Mr. Sanwal said, I think. Uh, in terms of the brass tax, the first uh, sort of text which was placed by the French presidency before the COP, and this was open, uh, happened in Wednesday, uh, which is the second week, you know, Wednesday of the second week. Normally, we are used to 
getting these kind of texts on you know friday afternoon friday evening and then uh, you know the presidency trying to hurry through the adoption and you know uh, trying to sort of force the gavel down and then parties uh, resisting and uh, and uh, a lot of bad know, blood and bad faith and a lot of bad faith yeah. uh, sort of pervading the atmosphere uh, that didn't happen the other remarkable part was that while people were not totally happy with the text that came out on wednesday uh, afternoon they nobody said that look this cannot be the basis for further negotiation and for further work and so that i found was pretty remarkable having you know experienced about 7 8 cops now uh, especially in the unfccc uh, so to that extent again uh, it's probably it's lays the foundation for a good cooperative sort of uh, endeavor by nations as they move forward in in implementing so the for, agreement so for our listeners three things that raman is saying one th- which mukul sanwal also mentioned is about the co-chairs from us and algeria almost dipsixing the process and dipsixing the positions of the developing countries and the bad blood that generated from that which the french tried to completely undo by putting the text out much before the last day to stitch together a artificial agreement and the fact that there was enough time for people to actually bring in their alternatives and to see if a really different arg- agreement and document can be stitched together we do see that a lot of parallel of that in a parliament also when voice votes are done on extremely important make or break bills and legislations also so a bit of uh, reflection from the international negotiation processes in our homes also which is why this ex- explainer series darwin you've talked about forum shifting and goal shifting your initial reactions on the deal you know i've not been following the nitty gritty of the negotiations and the texts mm-hmm. but if my takeaway from the entire conference is have has the world actually taken into account the imminence of the crisis which is before us that with all these voluntary commitments we are still hitting 2.7 degrees uh, above uh, pre industrial levels so you know we can talk about good drafts and and uh, you know wordage but i don't think i think negotiators were several steps behind the people who were demonstrating who who could see that the world is heading towards this uh, cataclysmic uh, situation and negotiators were several steps behind them i don't think they understood the they didn't permit the gravity of the situation to to influence this and um, frankly uh, i i don't see the uh, you know the 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 removal of historical responsibilities um, um i mean this might be seen as being pragmatic but it, it's a blow to all developing countries and i think uh, we have to see the the difference of situations between those who created the problem and those who who are going to face the consequences of it so i don't see this as a very um, good it might have been the best that could have been salvaged but under um, the circumstances it lacks, it lacks in several aspects 
And that's why precisely we have different storytellers and Chidamanda Adiche's warning about not having a single story. Thanks, Daryl, for bringing that contrarian perspective. So US did push for an equivalence between developed and emerging economies, developed countries and emerging economies, did not want anything legally binding, almost hijacked Brazil out of G77 plus China, grouping and tempers were flying high with two partisan co-chairs initially. Tell us the inside story. Give us a bit of nuggets, some of the ratcheted standoffs and the iterative meetings between the US negotiating team and uh, negotiators, I understand. Mr. Sanwal was telling that they had private one-off with a few emerging economies, but uh, had a concerted, designed attempt to avoid the Indian negotiators' iterative meetings. So give us a few uh, inside nuggets, Raman. So my, my information is not that uh, the Indian negotiating team was sought to be sidelined. Uh, my uh, information and my sense is that actually the Indian negotiating team was among the most sought after by the U.S. negotiating team. So I know of at least one sort of morning meeting where uh, a bunch of senior negotiators on, this is on Friday morning, were led to the U.S. Uh, delegation office by a senior U.S. negotiator who personally came. Todd Stern, yeah. No, not Todd Stern, another person uh, whose name now I suddenly can't see. Uh, I think Light, uh, Andrew Light? But Andrew I, did, Light. I did read a report uh, about so Todd Stern <coughs> also leading a delegation uh, for a so meeting yeah, with Ajay so Mathur Stern and company. With, uh, came with his bunch of negotiators to the Indian delegation, but then they were, you know, escorted by Andrew Light yeah. to, the, to the American uh, delegation and so on. And so uh, my sense is not that uh, the Americans were trying to isolate anybody uh, from among the basic or the other, uh, you know, like-minded developing country grouping, but that they were, you know, in a, indulging in a process or engaging in a process of uh, negotiation and, and of give and take. And the text reflects that. When multilateral Brahmastra bilateral Correct. And... Uh, in terms of Brazil kind of breaking away, again, my sense is that it seems that the basic uh, retrieved the situation because the basic then gave a press conference, uh, uh, I think on Thursday afternoon, uh, where they reiterated a sort of a unified stand in terms of both uh, their, their stand that CBDR has to remain and be part of the agreement and that differentiation is going to be key. And again, differentiation is reflected in various parts of the agreement if you pass through the various uh, elements. So uh, I think, I think uh, uh, the French presidency, uh, my sense, has played a very positive role uh, in the sense that they were uh, approachable, they were open, they engaged with everybody, and they encouraged people to uh, people who had major differences to... Uh, talk to each other and evolve uh, a consensus. And to a large extent, that helped. Daryl's point that, you know, this this agreement at this point in time doesn't take us to Too two far. degrees or below. We'll, we'll uh, talk about that. We'll okay. talk about that. Right. So, um, Daryl, you've actually talked about, I liked uh, what you've written in India together about how the team arrived and suddenly realized that the football analogy that one of their best players is missing, where was Brazil and what was Brazil doing? Would you like to spill the beans on the insider nuggets of what happened? And also the reason why I want a little more, not 
Raman sanitized view, but a little more ratcheted insiders, um, insider uh, nuggets is because our show does get listened to by not just international correspondents, but public policy students. And I think, as Mr. Sanwal said, this is a negotiation 101 lesson that was happening. So, Daryl, your take. Um, no, as I said, I wasn't following, you know, the day-to-day... -day but you did hour. point out that Brazil was missing and it was part of something new called ambitious group. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, say that again? You said that Brazil was missing and it was part of the ambitious no, group this, with the U.S. Uh, and the SID, small uh, island I developing states. What is it called? A coalition, hmm. which was a kind of, uh, to my mind, a uh, diversionary tactic. Hmm. And Brazil did join it, hmm. uh, which is a bit uh, strange. Because, um, you know, basic still maintain that kind of uh, uh, common stand. Right. And although they might have had a press conference subsequently, I, um, I think it was at, at a uh, Climate Action Network South Asia press conference, in fact, where this question was raised about Brazil. Mm -hmm. And everybody said they, everybody has different interests, but we have common alliances. But still, it was, to my mind, a bit puzzling because uh, by some media accounts, by Nitin Sethi, for instance, mm. that coalition only actually consisted of uh, 15, 20 countries which have actually signed in. Yeah. Whereas they're, pro they're claiming that they uh, represent 100, which would be a huge, huge alliance. Yeah. So these were, I think, uh, these were all red herrings uh, scattered all over the place. And um, I think, uh, I think, People, the negotiators probably saw through them, and it didn't. Uh, it didn't. Uh, it could have. Uh, it could have put a spanner in the works, but I think. I think in the end, it it went through in spite of those. Mr. Sanwar, no, I think, Raj, as you said, if there are students listening to this, I think the important issue here is that it is a perfect example of international institutions catching up with the changed global scenario. Mm -hmm. You have now a multipolar world, right. and international institutions are catching up with that. For example, I think China and India demonstrated a sophistication that has not been there in earlier negotiations by not coming to the negotiations to block, hmm. but actually to put forward something which is even more significant than what the other side was doing. Right. China had said, I'm going to cap my emissions in 2030 or earlier, and India came out with a very strong renewable energy program, and which is stronger. Money on the and, and which is stronger than what the United States and others are doing. <laughs> Uh, there is an assessment that in 2040, they will be using more coal than what we are going to be using. And we were not scared or ashamed to put that out in the open and say, look, this is why we need to use the coal. We have so far been defensive. That is one. The second big issue, I think, is that very clearly that the negotiating strategy of the G7 failed. The traditional negotiating strategy has been to declare divide. at the last no yeah. to divide the no to declare at somewhere around the final days that they are, I'm going to put more money which huh. they did huh. we said I'm going to double what I'm going to say right and therefore separate the moderates from the radicals in the G77 right Kissinger made this remark when the G77 was first instituted in the 70s hmm. he said we will offer a little money it's, there is an autobiography and divide the radicals from the uh, from the moderates. Mm. So that negotiating strategy which they had perfected with the origin of the G77 failed at this time. Mm. The third issue I think which is even more important is as an indicator of the multipolar world is that telephone calls were not working. Uh -huh. I have somebody, a friend of mine who's been an important negotiator. Did uh, the PMO get a call? No, they did. Okay. Everyone got a call but it did not work. So what the, this negotiator sent to me privately in an email from Paris was that look, Phone calls are being made, our only hope is India. Mm. 
and they were hoping that India would stand firm, and India did stand firm. Right. I think that is very important, right. because the Prime Minister had made out again for the first time that this is what we are standing for. Climate so justice. far, we have never said what we are standing for other than vague principles, right? Equality, equity, which you have to contextualize that in, in, with reference to the discussion that is going on. Here, there was a statement that this is what we are standing on. Okay, you can argue that it found its way only in the preamble, but that itself is a big achievement. Right. Because one, one must remember the remark made by President Bush in 1992: mm -hmm. the, the American way of life is not up for negotiation. Mm. So talking about uh, so you a have you have started, you have got something inside an agreement which says hey don't focus only on coal because we will start focusing on your lifestyles let's have a discussion right for the first time there is a debate and a discussion on the real world issues and I think that is very important and it has been appreciated by the third world I mean or the or the developing country negotiators and governments because they are watching. Yes, right. we can rely on India for the future also. Mm -hmm. And for our listeners, this becomes also important because in our debut episode, we discussed financing for development, where again phone calls were made, where again Uruguay and India stood ground till the last day. And we're still talking about illicit financial flows because domestic revenue is going to be the most important development financer coming, going forward. Aditi, your take on the, uh, on the insider nuggets, anything interesting you heard that you think our listeners should know? Well, I think uh, it's true. I would really agree with Mr. Sanwal. And uh, in fact, uh, I'm very thankful that for the first time, India had uh, something to say proactively rather than be reactive. And uh, I completely agree that, you know, India was always standing for certain principles without really um, articulating what they meant in, 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 in real world, you know, in real time or in, in the real world. Uh, so that, I think, put India on a different uh, level when the negotiations were happening, because here was India, which was actually bringing something to the table. And I think this was something that was appreciated by the G77 countries, you know, by some of the uh, LDCs, uh, which was not earlier, which I had not seen earlier. I think that that definitely was one. The second point that I'd really like to make is that, uh, yes, you know, telephone calls were made and, you know, this whole alliance, which we never really got to know whether it was for real or not real, because... Um, you know, nobody officially came and said that this was it. And yes, we also felt that it was red herring. But the whole idea is that in this whole negotiating world, there were these tactics. You know, initially there were a lot of media articles in the U.S. press saying that, well, India was a blocker, you know, the old kind of hat that was being done, uh, in a way to put India again back, you know, to, uh, to, to batting defensively. Right. So I think there were these several layers that were attempted in the initial days, in the first week, to see who would buckle first and on what. There was a huge onslaught on, uh, you know, India and China to do away with differentiation, to do away with CBDR. Right. Uh, so, so I think this multi-level kind of tactics mm. uh, were very much prevalent. And uh, I think probably what... Uh, what the French presidency did, and you know that's something really one would like to uh, say was excellent, was coming up with, as has been said, was coming up with these texts, because then everything was open. When these were the positions that people were taking, the different parties were taking, and you know these were the different options, and okay, this is what we're going to be negotiating with. So you know that level of transparency kind of overrode these all kinds of multi-layer tactics which were being employed. That's what I'd like. To just one, one brief sentence. 
Remember, the United States Secretary of State made the remark that uh, India is a challenge. And the sharp retort from India was? meant, huh. no, no, they said, what do, what do you mean by this challenge? Uh -huh. what, was something which was unexpected, it has never happened before. And one concrete result of that was that those articles stopped coming. Hmm. Suddenly you find that nobody's Absolutely. criticizing India. Yes. And that with an indicator that others are watching for and are noting. noting. Right. All other countries in the world are reading those articles and those responses right. and making up their mind as to what is going to happen. Right. So, 100 billion US dollar by 2020 per annum for adaptation finance. But Nancy Birdsall of the uh, Center for Global Development has written in Guardian, her forests are the public good, the common good, and developed countries need to pay for the forests in the developing countries. Another Indian negotiator, Mr. Sanwar, Sham Sharon, of the copped out Copenhagen summit, has told MK Venu in The Wire that adaptation technologies are actually a global good and should not be subjected to intellectual property rights and sh that kind of pettiness should not come in. So what is the specific on climate finance? Is fair share just a rhetoric? especially considering India's renewable energy target by 2022 as per India spend is going to cost about a trillion dollars, four times the defense budget. I think there are three issues here. Firstly, we must be clear that the 1992 climate treaty does not, and I repeat, does not provide for finance to be given for projects or changes on the ground. The commitment is only to provide money to the GEF for capacity building. That is one. But this agreement provides that the support that is provided, including finance, there is a number for the first time. For the first time since the 1970s, since the original G77, there is a number which is going to be reviewed at the multilateral level. It has never happened so far. So you this can check is a big all step the funds. ahead. Yes, every negotiation ended up with a fund. Uh -huh. Every negotiation on development or sustainable development right. issues, they are, they, are, they are not funded. There is no review of what they are doing, uh, the amount of money and what they are doing. You have a review on both. You also have some kind of ratcheting up of the technology assessment reviews. Right. Now, the question of <clears throat> intellectual property lies. My third point, specific point to your, your statement is that, you see, now the ball is in the other foot. Right. Now, China has probably more patents or more patents annually recently than the United States or Europe on renewable energy technology. Right. Now, the question that is going to be raised, and I think we need to watch out for is, that the small, I mean, the, the developing countries who have a lower per capita income than ours or China's are going to start saying, hey, what about South-South technology cooperation? They have placed so, $3 billion. No, no you have been, they, they are, this is going to come that the countries are going to tell India and China, you have been arguing about technology transfer in the North-South framework for over 30 years. What about, why don't, why don't you walk the talk South -South and share the technology that you are now developing? Right, because right. we have become holders and developers of technology, right. and that, I think, will be the real challenge for India and China. Are they prepared to share their intellectual property rights with developing countries, what they have been demanding from the North? Are they prepared to do that? And I have a sense that China is going to do it. Uh, and that's what Bob Dylan uh, calls the times they are changing. Yes, Daryl. the International Solar Alliance raise that issue? Exactly. So, see, I was going to come to that. Now, the International Solar Alliance is very interesting from what I, have, what I know about. I have not seen the details. I mean, I have not yet studied the details. I don't think they're in the public domain. Just as China established these financial institutions like the AIIB and the New Development Bank outside the Bretton Woods framework. What is AIIB? The Asia Investment Infrastructure Bank. Okay which has all more money than what the World Bank has. Mm. 
uh, India has established, I don't know by accident or design, established the Solar Alliance outside the United Nations. Right. So the signal that is coming from India and China is, if you are not going to uh, modify the international system, which you have set up right. to respond to the new needs right. and, and our, our concerns, we are going to set up parallel institutions. Now, how we develop this is going to be very interesting because the mandate or the objective of the Solar Alliance is all the things that we are talking about, basically to make energy cheap for people. This is what Prime Minister said, uh, Modi said in the G20. This is what he said uh, in Paris. And he, it is now headquartered in India, with, with India taking the lead. So again, the challenge comes that here are institutions outside the United Nations system which are going to develop their own rules. Now, just two points on this. I think the significance is that this will shape, shape the discussion within the United Nations and the WTO. But more important than that, if you compare this with the Montreal Protocol, the Montreal Protocol was also driven by industry in Europe and the United States mm -hmm. for their own benefit. Right. The question is, are we going to develop these, the Solar Alliance, to serve the interests of the, the, the Western industry. European no, 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 serve the interests of our industry. Okay. Because new rules will be shaped in the Solar Alliance. Right. And those new rules, if they respond to the needs of China and India's industry, will be a real game changer in the real sense. Right, right. Daryl, your take on the climate finance and this whole emergence of uh, uh, the patents with India, uh, China, which probably the whole world in terms of adaptation will be bankrolling? Well, you know, uh, uh, this is an uh, old, old uh, commitment made in, in um, Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, from what we can make out, only some, it was meant to be in the 2010, $10 billion a year from 2010 onwards, ratcheting up to $100 billion in 2020. But only some $5.83 crores, uh, $5.83 million has been paid into this account. So nobody is accountable at all. And, um, you know, uh, I think this is the problem with, with the whole uh, agreement, that nobody is liable, whether it's, it's for um, historical responsibility, whether it's for funding, whether it's for provision of technology, um, on all these issues, nobody is compelled to do anything. And also, India has come out with a fantastic report on the OECD, Organization of Economic Cooperation yeah, and Development, a, a, a of greenwashing good, of that money. A very good report. Yeah. I mean, I, I was really... Uh, we'll provide good. the link for it, the our listeners. It shows what Mukul is saying, that India has got a new uh, sense of self-confidence. Hmm. Both, I think, the International Solar Alliance and that critique. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the reclaiming the lost ground from Copenhagen to Cancun. Aditi, let's bring in the others into the discussion. Yeah, Aditi, yeah. your take on the finance and the fair shares and bankrolling it? Well, um, one of the things is that uh, this climate finance is supposed to be both for mitigation and adaptation. Uh, the second thing is that uh, as far as uh, India is concerned and, you know, the South-South uh, cooperation, well, there are two aspects here. First, if you talk to the private sector, you know, there, were, there were a huge number of private uh, corporate representatives in, um, in, in Copenhagen, and somehow they remain at the margins of negotiations and you know, all the discussions that we have. But I think they are really uh, driving the agenda, too. And if you speak with them, they say we don't really need the COP decision, you know, because, uh, well, we have our own MNCs now. And they say that, you know, the technologies are all there. We are willing to invest in them because it just makes business sense. 
So it doesn't matter if you put finance on the table or not. You know, we are going to anyway be investing in this. At the same time, I think probably what they don't appreciate is that if the macro policies do not allow any kind of technology sharing or technology investment, or do not safeguard the interests of the poor for you know accessing these technologies, then you know just using the power of money to get technologies is not going to be enough. But having said that, I think it's important to note that what India, is, you know, now I'm talking about real world. I mean, I completely agree with Daryl that the deal itself, the agreement itself, doesn't you know have any clarifications on technology. But what the real world is really talking about is technology sharing, and that's not really technology transfer. And I think that is probably the sentiment with which the private sector is going to be uh, dealing with the other developing countries. And a lot of the technology and a lot of finance and mitigation is going to be driven by the private sector, not by the government. We're not really looking at public financing. I mean, even the agreement is not really looking at public finance. We're all looking at private finance. That's one point that I'd like to make. The second point I'd like to make is that... Uh, when we are when we are looking at private finance, and, you know, and we are not looking at public finance, one of the points that the basic countries that Johnson said was that you know the reason they rejected the OECD um, claim that you know we put 62 percent on the table was that there needs to be a framework to say that you know what finance has come in, how much it is going to be used, where, etc. And this is what India also. Says. I don't see that framework, that transparency, that accountability in this agreement. And I'm just wondering how that's going to come into place in the subsequent talks that are going to be held. Raman? Yeah, so on the finance question, I think uh, the, the, uh, the instituting of these five-year stock take mechanisms, so every five years there's going to be stock taking, and it's going to be a comprehensive stock take across all elements and so on. One of the vexed questions on finance has been how do you count climate finance? Right. And so uh, it kind of really came to a head when the OECD put out, put out its numbers right. and the Indian uh, uh, Ministry of Finance uh, placed it. That was a strategic mistake. So, that so was a strategic mistake on their of part. Of OECD, yeah. So the issue has been, A, you need a common framework yeah. and you need certain rules for counting climate finance. Uh, because climate finance is going to flow through myriad channels, not right. a single channel. And they're going to be, uh, climate finance is going to be different for mitigation and different for adaptation. Right. Uh, now, these issues will probably start getting discussed and start getting clarified. Right. So that's the first part. The second part is that the IPRs that we're talking about in terms of, for a country like India, a large economy, which is going to be a technology taker in the mitigation space. Probably IPRs are not going to be a, an issue because the size of the market allows the technology provider to defray the costs, right? right? And so the cost of the technology itself is not a factor. So the, I, I think the access barrier won't be there. Yeah, but the, the and uh, on the adaptation side, there are many uh, technologies or learnings, or I would say the soft knowledge that is there in the south. And so there needs, needs to be this south-south sharing. I suppose the real problem is going to be, and on that there needs to be some, some discussion, where if you, for example, in agriculture, if you get these, I don't know, uh, uh, crackers of, uh, uh, how shall one say, very high-quality seeds that are resistant to 
temperature uh, variations that are resistant to uh, to Resil rainfall rainfall seeds, yeah. rainfall variations right. and all that which have probably a lot of uh, uh, you know, uh, lab work that's gone into it, and, and those seeds and, and, and those potential. seeds uh, eventually need to be shared. That's where you're going to have a big discussion right. on, you know, how do you right. uh, handle the costs and so on. So, but the issue is that uh, my sense is that what's the the real game is now going to be in terms of what happens in the stock take and the work that leads up to the stock take. We'll How talk, countries prepare we'll for that. We'll talk about the morning. And that's where the, uh, the uh, ambition as well as cooperation frameworks will get clarified. Right. We'll talk about this uh, the, uh, in a greater detail. For our listeners, again, one of the recurrent themes across this entire show has been the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the 34 richest countries traditionally, and their role and their, their heft and and they're throwing around their weight that we've noticed in different global summits. M but having said that, I cannot but share a joke if by the extremely talented Varun Grover from Masan fame as part of his Essie Democracy stand-up comedy routine in Sark Summit last year in Kathmandu, where he said that something that Mr. Sanwal talked about, about the small island countries on the brink of drowning, or Aditi has been raising, does it, people's arc, yes. Um, uh, uh, Karthik's just reminded me that it was people's arc, and your anchor, uh, yours truly, I actually was uh, responsible for taking the team to people's arc for the uh, closing finale, and uh, Varun had a joke about how in software industry, people who are, have got the pink slip, all they do is watch porn on the system. And perhaps Maldives, Kiribati, and a few other small island states in South Asia and across the world have started watching porn. Uh, nothing could have been more aptly put. Hopefully, that is not the scenario. Gardiner Harris of New York Times was lecturing Indians on NDTV on how India dips success all multilateral negotiations. My way or highway? The Western media went all guns blazing to paint India as the blocker. But from Copenhagen COP and Cancun COP in 2010, 2009 and 10 respe respectively to Durban in 2012 and Paris in 2015, the feeling amongst the southerners has been that India has stood its ground on equity and common but differentiated responsibility. From launching the Solar Alliance to calling for climate justice and not falling out with China, we, I think India has done a great job, and what we've been hearing, which has been echoed, is that Indian negotiators went extremely well prepared. So to Mr. Sanwal, on India's pitch and participation. You see, the, you see the, I think the, 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 the India particularly uh, took, took, took for, to the next step the initiative China had taken. The, the key issue in the China-US uh, agreement of 2014 really is that while the world was talking about historical responsibility, and the, the people who had created the problem were saying, well, hey, what about your future emissions? China bridged that divide very deftly by saying that the peaking will be determined nationally. Mm. Just as you are responsible for the past, you will not question my emissions up to 2030. Right. So that was really the big breakthrough. 
and bridging this discussion between historical responsibility and future emissions, saying that we need to balance the two. India took that one step forward by saying, by talking about climate justice. Right. So really they reset the agenda. Mm -hmm. Now, if we, the, the, the key issue of the multilateral negotiations is that setting the agenda is half the negotiation. Right. Now, what, what the implication of this was very clear that the focus was no longer on coal. And we faced that problem in the initial stages of the discussion, where people said, hey, but you need to peak. Right. Uh, President Obama has reportedly told Mr. President, Prime Minister Modi too, I want a peaking date from you. Right. And he said, look, my peaking date is going to be 2050, and you will not like it, so why do you want to discuss, discuss it, or why do you want to put that in an agreement? And I'm not going to give you a date below that number, before that year, because I'm not prepared to compromise my development. Right. So the, the key issue, I think, one, one issue that emerged in Paris was that in their own way, the Chinese and the Indians were reframing the discussion and saying, it is not about environmental risk alone. Mm -hmm. It's not about rights and burden sharing. Mm -hmm. this, is about, this is about opportunities right. and solutions. Right. And here is the solution that I have put in, in, in terms of uh, the Solar Alliance. Let's talk about that. Right. And you can see shades of that in the statement that were made that talking about lifestyles and China saying quite bluntly, I think, that I need electricity for heating, I need electricity for air conditioning, and you need to drive your car. Right. Very clearly putting the focus on lifestyles of the middle class in urban areas, which should be part of the discussion. Right. Now, this is the first time that has happened in a negotiation like this. So by reframing the discussion, you, you, you provide justification for what you are saying, you get support for what you are doing, and you maintain a coalition and you're not isolated. I think that was fantastic performance by both the Chinese and the Indians working together. Right. And, and it also showed that they are no longer dependent on the G77. Right. China and India have become powerful enough, just as the EU and the United States could say, hey, I cannot have a legally binding uh, phrase here because my Senate would not ratify it. The Chinese and the Indians would also say that, hey, I cannot have an understanding here which is going to compromise my development because my legislature will not ratify right, it. Right, right. So um, this is again something that we keep hearing, that if India and China want to be the big boys and need a table, seat at the table, then they start, need to start behaving like big boys. Um, Daryl, your take on India's pitch and participation at uh, Paris? Well, uh, I was so anxious not knowing what was happening behind the scenes uh -huh. because I thought we were just reiterating the same positions. Right. And um, I can recall that, uh, you know, Mukul was very much uh, uh, around in uh, Rio. Uh -huh. And in Copenhagen. And in Copenhagen. In a different capacity. But, but yeah. in Rio, I think uh, Kamalnath was really uh, on top of the, the situation. Right. And was, uh, you know, um, had people running around him. Um, I don't think uh, Jaudekar has that kind of um, finesse. Uh -huh. uh, he, he usually just continues to mouth the same old uh, slogans. Um, and uh, I don't think he was sufficiently, uh, Mr. Ajay Mathur was far more effective right. in countering, you know, various uh, claims and uh, slurs and stuff like that. Right. So um, I'm not that impressed by what India did. But did you, did you think that India clay reclaimed lost ground from uh, Cancun and Copenhagen at Paris? From Copenhagen, it was the bottom of the pit, so there's not much. You can only go up. You can only go up. Okay, okay I think very, Mr. Very, Sanwar very, has very an briefly. anecdote to add. Very, very briefly. You see, Daryl, in yeah. 1992, the key issue was forests. 
In the final negotiation, forest. Forest, forest. Forest, forest should be internationally regulated. Right. And in the key negotiation, just as an example, key negotiation on the last night, India alone stood out and said no. Yes. Uh, and they were in that room, nobody spoke. Mm-hmm. Nobody spoke. Indonesia sitting next to India mumbled, we agree with you, but we have instructions not to speak. Right. And after a two-hour discussion, the United States finally said, all right. Okay. That is when Japan said, when they are not going to agree, how long are we going to carry this on? My sense is that exactly the same situation would have taken place on CBDR. We're putting CBDR in the, in the, in the purpose and the sustainable development and eradication of poverty in the purpose. I'm, I'm reasonably certain that the same discussion would have taken place with Jabadekar Kerry and his people repeatedly putting pressure on them. Okay. Not in the same format, but at the same kind of pressure. Okay, from iconic ex- experts, let's come back to experts of our current lives and times. Raman, on India's pitch and participation. Okay, uh, so my sense is that when India went to the negotiations, it was probably fearful uh, of there being a big push and for is- there being... Isolation? Uh, uh, no, there being symmetry. Mm-hmm. So it being a symmetrical agreement without any differentiation. Uh, And uh, the fact that India needed uh, development space. It wanted to secure its development space. Uh, I think uh, in terms of the agreement, despite the fact that it doesn't meet the the overarching goal of the agreement, the agreement itself doesn't provide you uh, with the wherewithal Mm. to to be certain that you'll be meeting that goal. I think India uh, sort of, compromised to the extent that it said, fine, that the old differentiation paradigm uh, is probably something that we need to move away from and move on from, but that differentiation still matters and it's important. And therefore you find that India and China and all the basic countries pushed hard for it and, and differentiation is included in one form or another in the various different parts of the agreement. The second thing that they've done is that they've been able to secure their uh, development space uh, or their right to development. I agree that it's at the cost of historical responsibility or the countries, developed countries, kind of not being held accountable for their uh, historical responsibilities. But I also feel that if a comprehensive stock take is done, in which uh, developed countries, because they are more capable, they have more financial capability, are expected to provide finances for greater developing country action. Their underwhelming ambitions will be exposed. Then then, uh, if you you raise ambition, you're going to find that historical responsibilities do get reflected in a a, uh, roundabout manner. If, on the other hand, the global community does not have the will to ratchet up ambition uh, of this agreement as it goes along, then we are all doomed anyway. Right. I mean, you know, so so that's uh, where I would sort of, uh, uh, you know, have my takeaway. So uh, for, for our listeners, three concepts here. Number one is this whole peaking concept, which means that India at a certain point of time or rest of the world, different countries at different points of time have to 
max, max, reach the maximum level of their carbon emissions, and then they have to choose a pathway where the emissions has to be low. Common but differentiated responsibility means when the entire world owes it to the planet Earth, that our only home, to reduce uh, emissions and to reduce the uh, change, the rising temperature, not every country owes the responsibility equally, and the developed countries who've been industrializing for the last 200 years and have eaten up a fair share of, the, a massive share of the carbon, uh, uh, the global carbon should be footing more responsibility. Third is something that we've been listening to in all the episodes till now, is how 2007 and 8, the meltdown has been used for different miserliness from the rich countries, especially the, G, um, the uh, Western European and the North American countries, the OECD, call it the OECD block or G7. And Raman thinks that a transparent stock take will further expose the miserliness and inaction and under-ambition. In the COP21 curtain raiser, we also discussed about Capitan America, the book put out by CSE, where Center for Science and Environment, where they discussed the under-ambition of US. I think that's also a link, and that's an episode will definitely encourage the listeners to go back to. Aditi, your take. I think I'd like to put on the table that uh, probably one of the fears, uh, you know, at the start of the negotiations was that coal was going to be a big story. And I know that negotiators initially were questioned and, uh, you know, they did kind of frame different answers or different ways of saying the same thing on coal. So I think probably one of the, one of the wins uh, for India has been that coal was not a story, neither for China or for India. Because uh, China has been, you know, there's a lot been written about China having done its coal deed before coming to negotiations, if I may put it like that. <laughs> and India wanting to go ahead with coal, as Raman says, you know, leading the bad development phase. So I think that was something that India was very clear about, uh, China was very, very clear about, that, okay, that's something that's non-negotiable, it's been done, it has to be done. And I think from there, it just focused on the future, you know, on climate solutions was this huge, um, you know, the, I've never seen media cover India the way I saw media at that India Solar Alliance. Right. Where, had the French presidency and you had uh, Prime Minister Modi. Uh, I don't think India has ever been in the limelight. Uh, I mean, Mr. Sanwar will correct me because I've not been to all the cops. Right. But I think that was really a special moment for India where it was really looking to the future and saying, you know, 100 countries, developed, non-developed, so, you know, all kind of, uh, it, it's a new alliance. It's a new pragmatic alliance. And uh, I think that kind of puts India on a separate um, Level. So I think that was good. Um, however, I'd like to say that, um, yes, differentiation has been uh, watered down, if I may put it like that, which, uh, you know, Annex 1 has, in that sense, gone out of the uh, discussion. Uh, CBDR differentiation are there, as Raman says, but yes, you know, those are things that in the subsequent negotiations, there is a risk that that may be watered down even further. That's, 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 that's my kind of take on it. The second kind of takeaway is that, yes, we've got these climate justice and lifestyle, uh, um, sustainable lifestyle put in the agreement, but I think these are new jargon. Right. Uh, we'll have to deal with them in subsequent uh, negotiations. And these are both climate justice and the sustainable lifestyles are critical not just 
inter-country, but also intra-country. Yes, we'll talk about and that. So, uh-huh. and, and also what I'm saying is that those are discussions which are going to come to the fore when the subsequent reviews and negotiations are held. So I think we'll have to demystify what we really mean by climate justify, uh, climate justice and um, sustainable life. So Aditi, thanks for raising that intra-country point. We'll ha- we actually have a section dedicated to that. For our listeners, the problem is you guys really have to start clicking and we have to fundraise for the show. Having iconic experts like Mukul Sanwal and Daryl and dedicating just an hour discussion to this is actually doing an injustice to the topic. Please do come in, sir. We'll you know, to take a, uh, and Daryl, just to take a criti- cricket analogy, hmm. you know, Javadikar, I mean, he was mentioned, named. So yeah. Javadikar came in as a last batsman. Hmm. And let, let me tell you why. <laughs> let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. The principle of common but differentiated responsibility originated in the Rio Declaration hmm. as soft law. Right. I was co-chairing that negotiation. Hmm. When it came to the 1992 Climate Treaty, the United States insisted, they said, we cannot adopt it, you have to add and respective capabilities. So that was the first dilution. The second dilution of this whole, whole scheme of things was at Kyoto, where the world community agreed with the European Union and the United States that the emissions reduction would be based on current emissions and not historical emissions. Right. And that was a major compromise. There was no discussion of concentration of what happened in the past. It was current. So we can't blame the the people who came after. And the annexes evaporated at Lima. Right. Not at uh, at Paris. So when you look at it in this light... Why don't you tell our listeners what is annexes? Even Aditi mentioned annexes. The the climate uh, negotiation, one of the achievements, I think the major achievement of the 1992 treaty was to divide countries into two parts and listed in annexes. Right. So that the differentiation was enshrined as part of the treaty. The developed countries in and developed countries and and annex one and the non-developed countries being the non-annex one countries. So that was enshrined, and there was some kind of a firewall between this uh, these two groups of countries. As a reminder of historical responsibility. And if you look at the history of the climate negotiations of 1992, the dominant theme has been the stress of European Union and United States to end the diverse uh, differentiation. Right. And the key issue of ending it came at Lima when the annex is evaporated. And it is from then onwards that you don't have references to annex Annex one or non-annex one parties. You have parties and countries. Okay, let's go to something much more interesting that Aditi touched upon, that is intra-country. Daryl, did you want to uh, come in before we talk intra-country? Yeah, I mean, no, 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 uh, uh, very much, uh, I was going to say exactly the same thing. We're going to have climate justice at home as well. Right. Talking of climate justice, India keeps throwing the 1.6 tons CO2 per capita emission to ring fence its right on a development pathway which depends on carbon. But Greenpeace... Yes, the same Greenpeace which is run into trouble with Government of India, in a brilliant synthetic review in 2007 showed how the rich in India emit 4.2 tons CO2, which is at par with the developed country averages, and the top 10% of urban India consume 15 times more than the bottom 10% of urban India, and hold your breath, 27 times more than the rural the bottom 10% of rural India as per the 2003-04 standards. This is too close to home for me too, considering I come from Orissa, which is energy surplus, but has actually the lowest per capita energy access. So when we say climate justice, climate justice for who exactly in India? And is the Indian intended national determined goals, contributions, bridging the gap between the rich and poor? 
Aditi, you had raised that point, so why don't you tell us what do you think? Are we sitting on a cleft stick becoming the brand ambassador of equity globally, whereas pumping up and ratcheting non-inequitous policies and programs intra-country? Uh, yes, we could do that. And I think the India Pavilion at uh, Paris kind of uh, reflected that very well because, you know, it was uh, a judge to be the best pavilion. Uh, I don't know whether... Uh, maybe I think there were some media reports on that, but everybody I spoke to, uh, irrespective of which country they came from, said that that was really the best pavilion. It was extremely high tech, and uh, you know everything like uh, the, the 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 whole uh, setup, the uh, the TV screens, everything was extremely high tech. But what was being seen on the screens were poor people's faces. So it was like India was showcasing Bharat. And, you know, so in, in, in one space, India was saying, well, you know, we are poor and we want climate finance and we want technology transfer and we want differentiation. And on the other hand, we said, well, you know, we are the best in the world if you're looking at ICTs and, you know, high tech in the interventions, etc. So I think there was this double speak, hmm. which, uh, which did confuse people. Because if you look at that India Pavilion, you can never know what happens in coastal Orissa or yes. in Sundarban. yes. So I think somewhere, somewhere India will have to reconcile India and Bharat, if I may put it right. uh, in this way, whether it is internally or even externally in the negotiations, because otherwise uh, the climate justice will just fly in its face. Right. And now that we're coming up with smart cities, uh, if there's a fear that, you know, uh, what is the smart cities really going to be look at, uh, looking at? You know, if you have these American-type or Europe-type uh, highways, and then you have 87% of our people still depending on depending on biomass for cooking, or it might come down to 70% or 60%. That's still a high proportion. So I think somewhere we'll have to reconcile this, and uh, and we'll have to do it internally to internally to be good brand ambassadors externally. Right, uh, and for our listeners. What Aditi just said is really too close to the core also, considering we are recording this episode the um, two days after the Shakur Basti slums were raised to the ground. And there was, there was debate about how consistently urban planners find land for flyovers and shopping malls, but not for slums, especially considering 25 to 40% of urban India, which is cross-subsidizing the rich and the middle class lives in probably 3 to 4 percent of urban India land. Um, Daryl, I know you've written reams and reams about this cleft stick, um, forked tongue approach of India. So what is your take about intra-country you know, uh, climate justice? Especially picking up on that one uh, line of Aditi's, uh, because we always talk about the 300 million without electricity, quite right. rightly. But uh, we should really be much more concerned about the 800-plus million who have to use um, firewood and other agricultural waste for cooking. Right. Because in many ways, cooking is, is more fundamental than, than lighting. Right. And it hardly gets any mention because it's, it's uh, considered a non-commercial uh, form of energy. Right. So, you know, there, there are no uh, pl big players in this. Uh, what prevents India from changing that kind of basic provision of energy for cooking uh, is only our own indifference. Right. I'm sure that uh, if we 
diverted some of these funds from, I've mentioned in an article today in the Hindustan Times that, uh, you know, we're building bullet trains and coastal roads and all the other flyovers and stuff like that. Uh, I'm sure, I mean, all of that may not provide basic energy, but a beginning has to be made. And um, it's really speaking a right that we should uh, recognize just like a right to food and work and education and in information, right to energy right. should, be, should be enforced. Right. Uh, Mr. Sanwal, if I can ask you to take off your diplomat and your bureaucrat hat, the political observer, what does he think about India's position? You see, the, the whole thing is that these negotiations are seen by the, through a prism, political prism mm. which reflect national interest. Mm. So when you look at uh, when you really, really consider reporting in say the New York Times, you have to take this in mind, or when, say or uh, in the Hindustan Times or uh, Business Standard, <coughs> that they are reflecting in some senses the perspective of the person who's writing it, of course, and also national interest to some extent. I think the dilemma that India faces hmm. is that on one hand it is the third largest emitter, right, going to be the second largest economy. Right. On the other hand, its per capita emissions are well below the global average. Right. Let me put it differently. The 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 in terms of emissions, mm -hmm. New York City's emissions are equal to the emissions of sub Saharan Africa. Right. That is the scale of the operation. Yeah, but what about our uh, uh, place? I'm, and coming, I'm coming to that. I'm coming to that. I'm coming to that. The issue really is that as we urbanize huh. our uh, in uh, our use of electricity right and emissions is going to go up mm -hmm. so the dilemma part of the dilemma i think we are likely to face political dilemma at home is what Daryl alluded to is that if we have some kind of a renewable energy uh, target right now all this is firewood that we are using is part of renewable energy i hope that there is no such policy tacit policy that to keep people using firewood to meet that target. Mm. No, I'm, I'm saying it half-jokingly. But the key issue is that as we urbanize, this is going to change. Mm -hmm. I think the difference we need to make is when we look at urban emissions and rural emissions, mm -hmm. is that it is a stage of development. Right. That is one. The second issue is that how, does, how else does India project itself at the global level when you have a bit of it equal to the Europe mm -hmm. and most of it equal to sub-Saharan Africa? Right. I think there is no other way to do, deal with it. Now, as far as solutions are concerned, I think let's look at another kind of solution. Will the solution come from the climate treaty or will the solution come from events like the Bihar election where rural electrification was an important key issue? And the road connectivity. And the road connectivity. Because, and this came out, I have, as a bureau, former bureaucrat, I was aware of this 25 years ago. And I was surprised to see that this, what I'm going to say right now, is an, was an election issue Electoral in Electoral agenda. No, the, the, the definition of electrification in our country apparently continues to be that if an electricity pole passes through a village boundary, that village is declared electrified. It does not depend on the number of connections or the intake of electricity in that village. Right. So it was a definition issue. And we had convinced ourselves that India has, has met its electrification target. I think in Bihar, that issue came up in a very strong way. It is coming up in Uttar Pradesh. And the state electricity boards are being sorted out, not because of any financial incentive or regulation from New Delhi, but because of electoral politics, the elections that are going to take place. So my take on this is really that as the internet spreads, as mobile phones spread, and as television spreads, and they see that the village, a remote village has power cut because they are told that we don't have electricity, but they see the street lights are there 24-7 in Bombay and New Delhi, 
there is going to be an upheaval and those and people are going to demand electrification and that is where the change will take place and along with urbanization as part of of, of, the, of our development so i think we need to i mean in, uh, just in one sentence i think we need to see ourselves at a particular stage of development and i, I and because of we are a democratic country this is going to be sorted out it has to be raman so my just very short yes. very short uh, this thing uh, the the fact that there is inequity at home uh, is not to be denied and that has to be addressed but having said that the kind of inequity we have for example there's this work that branko milanovic did yes. which where where he has shown that the, the top 5% income earners in india are actually equal to or probably poorer than the bottom 5% americans right and if you were to take uh, emissions as some sort of a surrogate i would think that that's what would be the reflection but i don't think uh, that's right uh, in I don't terms think of in ter no but in because terms in the of glo global fortune no, no, magazine top 100 of, indians too no, but they are not statistically significant no the, 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 uber the, doll, rich, the dollar the billionaires do feature there no no they feature but they're not statistically significant that's the point the point is that they're not statistically significant so the issue is that we still need to despite the fact that we need equity at home it's nobody's argument to say that we could given our endowments spread it around and have prosperity all around we need more development space so to ask for development space is not a contradiction of perpetuating inequity at home of course we need equity at home but we need also equity globally and so both are not contradictory but don't you think from i think Raj, yes uh, if i may come yes, in, yes, i don't please. think that anybody is saying that yes. you know one should not ask for equity at the uh world you know in right, the world right right of course we are a poor country compared yes. to any other you know even when you're looking at per capita and you you know I mean, we are one fourth of china we are one tenth of uh us mm. we are not saying that all we are saying is that to make our case more robust mm. we have to address equity at home that's all that we are saying absolutely we're not for one moment saying that we don't want equity in the world it's a highly inequitous uh, world for us right absolutely. yeah so 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 long as we are clear that you know our our stand of equity at the international forums is somewhat hypocritical i don't agree i think i think we need to address equity internationally we also need to address equity at home and both need to go together so for our listener for our listeners i would really encourage since this is explainer series and we keep saying shoke didar hai to nazar paida kar please listen and read a bit of d raghunandan who featured in a curtain raiser episode he does talk about specific actions of inequity in policy and action which as aditi rightly said takes off the shine of india's moral sheen when india stands as a brand ambassador of global equity and continue i mean we're talking at a life and time when bundelkhand is going through its third year of severest drought and the public policy discourse has been more muted than ever before so i think those are issues that that need to come front and center uh, finally fi <laughs> Yes, Aditi. I think we need to also say that this discussion is is about energy poverty, 
And if you just just uh, look at it, look at the way the world has treated energy, you will note that the Millennium Development Goals did not include energy. Right. So I think the important issue is that for the first time now, say in the Bihar election, climate change and the Sustainable Development Goals, energy has become center stage. And I'm quite Did sure. Yes. Yes, Aditi. I, no, I just said I agree uh, completely. But what I would like to say is that we usually define energy only as electricity. And as Daryl picked up my point, that when we are looking at capital, you know, uh, climate justice, right? Uh, and and climate justice includes gender e uh, equality. Then we also have to look at cooking, cooking and heating. Yes. So you know, just applying LPG to the hills to the no. hills has not done the the deed because we just prefer gathering firewood for heating. Right. So you cannot heat with LPG. And, and so I think we have to look at energy in a in a holistic fashion, and I think we would then be able to uh, address equity much better. No, I take your point because looking at the hills, for example, Aditi, you are, who are you supplying it to? The hills are becoming depopulated because of inequity. Right. Finally. Oh, the old the old women the old women otherwise they're getting depopulated and it's it's a it's a it's a it's a fantastic example of our of, of, of the of the flawed policies that we have we talk of hill development and you are looking at the reality there is that the interior villages are getting depopulated and old women and old men are all that remain there because they have nowhere to go okay let's uh, it's time to wrap up finally the deal is done the morning after what do we expect from 2015 onwards and when the first stock take happens in 2018? What will it mean for me, our children, our shared destinies, for you, Mr. Sanwar? So I think, you know, two points here. One is that this is a framework agreement. Hmm. And a lot of work continues to be done to frame the rules and guidelines. Right. That is one. Two, I think the, well, because we are going to be subject to stock take right. at the international level, which really looks at the way we look at ourselves. Right. I mean, the indic forget the focus on emissions, because there are going to be a lot of other issues in that. For example, the policies and strategies that we have for sustainable development are going to come up for international review. I think it's going to have a very positive impact on national policy making as well. Right. Because there is going to be an element of accountability, which goes beyond that of the accountability that is usually exercised by legislatures. And I think this was, and the fact that adaptation is also becoming center stage now for the first time, it is not a mitigation agreement, this is going to percolate down to the states and from the states down to the lower levels. And if these issues become more part of the public discourse, I think the kind of things we have been talking about will get a fill up. Raman, what does it mean for your and my children? And I us? Think, I think what it means is that uh, we, we are. As of now, we are on course for disaster, but that uh, we hope that the the ratchet up mechanisms in the agreement uh, end up in ratcheting up actions, uh, actions, and that's where the hope is. Aditi, I think uh, two things. One, I hope that when the review happens, uh, science is given far more credence than it than you know disagreement is given. Right. Science, if, if science is really given more credence, it means that adaptation has to be really core to action because there are limits to adaptation. You know, we cannot keep emitting and, you know, we cannot keep adapting because right. there are limits to adaptation. There are already limits to adaptation and we've not even begun talking about loss and damage right. which is going to occur in our country. So I think science needs to be really central to the review when it happens. And the second thing is climate justice because I think climate uh, impacts are not uh, neutral. They affect different people differently. They affect different geographies differently. 
we really have to look at climate justice and you know unravel it and see what it means and how do we then take actions to really uh, you know reduce climate impacts on the most vulnerable people and countries daryl wrap it up for us yeah i think um, you know it's the beginning of a process now a, a path and we have to uh, tread warily uh, but i just want to leave with a counter question can we really expect a country like the united states to throw open its emissions for um, multilateral uh, monitoring i i wonder whether that would ever happen and i think that is a perfect tone and note to end this on because again full disclosure to the uh, listeners i was teaching at the united nations university in tokyo in uh, october and one of the uh, professors from the rotary peace center international christian university did say thought experiment please remember the last global event that was chaired by us and anything good came out of it mm true So great Daryl to leave us with that thought experiment and that was our Paris COP21 post event reactive to our listeners again as you can see this is too short a time when you get iconic experts to discuss this issue in just 60 minutes and Karthik is glaring at me because it's probably becoming 75 minutes or more <laughs> today we are recording this episode when another global summit has just kick started that is the WTO 10th ministerial at Nairobi we will wait a new word that i learned from gardener harris of nyt deep sixing we will see if the WTO 10th ministerial will deep six all that was gained at paris cop we, in the next episode we'll take stock of the WTO summit we would like to thank our collaborator save the children india a leading non-profit dedicated to the agenda of children for their support in bringing this episode to you this is part of their campaign action 2015 for just deals and a just world order for us all a big shout out to kartik nijhavan of team news laundry for producing this episode thanks kartik and all the reference readings of this episode will be available on global summits page on the news laundry website so if you are listening to this on soundcloud or itunes then you need to check the web page for the readings please write to us follow us on twitter like us on facebook and support independent media so you can decide where are we going this is piraj swain signing off for global summits where are we going Catch all new episodes of Global Summits Where Are We Going on newslaundry.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook.